All right, as the baskets are going around, you can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Believe it or not, our last Sunday in 2 Corinthians, okay? Last Sunday in 2 Corinthians. If you're a guest, we've been, we've been rolling through this book the last nine months. We've preached through books of the Bible, and, and next Sunday, we're going to start a new series in the book of Philemon, and so it'll be a little shorter series, but that'll launch us into the summer. But as you're opening your Bible to 2 Corinthians 13, I, I want to take you back 1990. Some of you weren't born. Some of you were Will Peters, 1990. He'd been married 20 years already. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, yeah, sorry, Will. 1990, I was in the Philippines and the Singapore on a mission trip with Campus Crusade for Christ. And I was to be gone two or three months. And I was really excited about this trip. There was only, only one problem. I was leaving as a man in love. Okay, to, to, to a young woman named Susan Ward. Okay, so, there, okay, right there, Susan Ward. Remember, in those days, yeah, thank you. Um, no electronic communiques, no social media, no FaceTime. It was $100 for a 20 minute phone call from Singapore. Okay, so we actually had, I know this is hard to believe, but we actually had to what? Write letters. Okay, it was shocking. Okay, and we still have those letters by, by chance. And and as the days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months, and as I was getting ready to, to, to come back to the States, I was just, I was turning up the heat. You know what I'm saying, guys? You know what I'm saying? Dropping that, that little affection, those terms of endearment. I was sort of priming the pump because I was in love. I was coming to, 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 to get ready to ask this girl to marry me. Now, I must have done something wrong because we promptly broke up when I got back. Okay, so I did not. It ultimately worked out, okay? It worked, it worked out, okay? But not the way exactly we thought. But the point is that my parting words to her in these letters were meant to prepare her and me for my coming home, so to speak. Here at the end of Paul's letter, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is coming back to visit them. He's coming home. I mean, remember, Paul had spent 18 months there. Um, he had poured his blood, sweat, and tears out for this church, and he tells them he's coming back for a third visit after an extended time away. What would be Paul's parting words? How would Paul prime the relational pump, so to speak, and prepare them for meeting him once again? What's he going to say? What would you say? What would you say? Well, Paul says might surprise us a little bit. So let's look there. We'll flash these words on the screen. Paul says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. 
But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things that while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use authority that the, uh, the use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Lord, once again, we pray your help. We pray for a revived heart, a renewed heart, ears to hear, eyes to see, wills to obey. So may your word go forth, may it accomplish everything good and perfect that you have established for it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I was a child of the 70s, um, and, and maybe you were a child of the 70s. If you were a child of the 70s, you no doubt remember traveling in your parents' wood-paneled station wagon, right? Okay, a la Brady Bunch. Everybody remember this? Okay. Sick as a dog in the back hatchback area, right? But having the time of your, of your lives, raising cane with your brothers and sisters, and your parents yelling, right? Yelling at you to sh- whatever. And what would dad invariably say? children of the 70s. What would he say? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Don't make me come back there. You know, he's swinging his arm, you know, and like, and he's trying to get at you, and you're like trying to bob and weave, and you know, and, and, and millennials, if you're horrified right now about this kind of discipline, you don't know what you missed. It was awesome. It was glorious times. In a lot of ways, this kind of appears like the don't make me come back there letter, doesn't it? The don't make me come back there concluding paragraph. I mean, look at all the things Paul says. He says, I'm warning you. He says, I will not spare you. Test yourself. Examine yourself, Corinthians. I I I don't want to be severe in my use of authority, but I just may have to open a can, right? That's that's what he's it's like. And can I be Captain Obvious here for a moment, Four Oaks? For someone attempting to prime the pump relationally. Paul needs a lesson or two, doesn't he, in how to woo a congregation. <laughs> it's Paul. This is not how to win friends and influence people. And we might even say, you know, Paul's sounding kind of scary. He's sounding kind of unsafe. We'd have to, to he couldn't be in the free speech zone, okay, over at Florida State, you know, where nobody wants to get their feelings hurt. I mean, Paul, I mean, where's the love here, Paul? Where's the author of 1 Corinthians 13? Now, let me say this. Folks, for us to get this passage, you know, like really get it, understand it, wrap our hearts and minds around it and apply it, we are going to have to begin to reimagine what love is. We are going to have to expand our scope because there's certain aspects of love that we intuitively identify with, that love is tender and merciful and forgiving, which it absolutely positively is. But as we're going to see, biblical love is also meaty. It's weighty. It's truth-filled. It's, it's, 
It's rugged. To best understand and apply that kind of love means that we're going to have to see love in all of what I'm calling its full-orbed glory. A full-orbed love. Okay, and, 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 and what do we mean by full-orbed? Okay, I had a roommate in college, and I'm going to tell this story, and I'm going to call him today and tell him to go listen to this. Okay? But anyway, Miller. He's a roommate. He's a pretty decent-looking dude, as dudes go, from a certain distance or angle, right? He looked pretty normal. But when you got up close and personal to Miller, okay, you realize he had quite the bulbous head. Do you know what I mean? Okay? So, in fact, he would, he, would, he would gladly tell you today they called him Frankenstein as he was growing up. Okay? He had a very large noggin, okay? and it's kind of a full noggin. And, and, but you had to like, get up close to like, really fully appreciate the full scope of this, and so we constantly mocked him. But anyway, we loved each other. We loved each other and still do. Because in a lot of ways, it's kind of the same thing as fully orbed love. I mean, love can look a kind of a particular way from a distance. But when you get an opportunity to get up close and personal with it, you don't just see one angle or one aspect. You see the fully orbed deal. And what Paul's going to tell us is that when we get that, when we understand anew what love really is, this passage will make perfect sense. We will gladly receive it in our hearts. We will gladly minister it to the people around us. It will give us spiritual life. Okay, that's where we're going this morning. So three parts of this sermon. We're talking about the scope, the goal, and the test. Okay, The scope, the goal, and the test of full-orbed love. Let's talk about the scope. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, did he not? Yes, he did. An earlier letter to the Corinthians. And, and, and even if you haven't been in church much, you undoubtedly remember many of those attributes of love that Paul, Paul talked about. Love is patient. Love is kind. Um, love overlooks wrongs. Okay? But there's, a, there's another set of attributes of love that don't intuitively, instinctively come to mind because we have to remember that love is all those things, but it's also, love is also courageous enough to face down untruth. Love is also bold enough to call out sin and evil. And there are times when if, if we don't do those things, if we don't confront evil or confront sin, in fact, it can be one of the most unloving things that we can do for someone. So Academy Awards, a couple months ago, the, the movie Spotlight, Won, won, won the Emmy for Best Picture, and it was really a movie about how reporters exposed the Roman Catholic Church for a lot of the, the corruption of covering up years and years and years of the abuse of young children. And it kind of details just how the concern for kids, the love for kids, was outweighed by the desire to protect priests and the church's reputation. And as Protestants, as evangelicals, we have our share of those kinds of scandals as well. And we have to take a step back and say, you know what? I don't think anybody would disagree that real love, bold love, courageous love, fully orbed love in that context would have called out sin and evil. It would have enforced consequences. It would have protected 
the innocent. And, and, and sometimes when we think about these things, we have a hard time keeping them in tension, okay? keeping them in balance. But Paul had no such problem, okay? because he had a fully orbed love for the Corinthians. Okay? So, so drop back for a second. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6, on one hand we hear Paul saying, I speak to you as children. It's like, Corinthians, open your hearts to me. I love you. Reciprocate that love for me. And then on the other hand, look here in verse 2, he's giving a warning. He says, I will not spare you. And it's like, this is the sort of thing that happens when people don't repent of sin. And Paul says, I may have to come and put you out of the church like I did the unrepentant brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Bible calls this sort of love discipline. And we don't intuitively often associate the scope of love with this. But what I want to say this morning, and Paul wants to say this morning, it is intricately bound up. It's not that discipline is a part of love. It is, in fact, that discipline is love. Okay, look at Hebrews 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So, so he's writing them as sons. This is the writer of Hebrews. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, appro- when reproved by him. For the Lord, listen to this, disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God, in fact, is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Do you hear that, parents? When we don't discipline, okay, uh, we're lacking in love. Okay, so, so fill in the blank, little, little Bible quiz. Okay? It's an it's, it, it's old proverb, you probably all know it. Here's how it goes, you fill in the blank for me. Spare the rod, and what's the other part? Wrong, absolutely wrong. <laughs> I, I love doing that. That is not, not, not new to me. Another pastor did it. Actually, spare the rod, spoil the child is a, is a, is a modern sort of you know, Ben Franklin-ish, you know, Poor Richard's Almanac proverb. But do you know what Proverbs 13, 24 actually says? Spare the rod and what? Hate your son. Ooh. Hate your son. Don't want to get into a big debate about corporal punishment. But the, but the point is... Well, when we don't discipline, boy, there's something lacking in our love. You know, parents, you ever been sitting there? I'm certain you have, because I have. And, and you hear the ruckus in the other room, right? You ever been there? You hear the ruckus? And, 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 and what are your choices there, oftentimes? Okay, if you're me, you can yell, like something from the other room, like be quiet, okay? Or one of my favorite strategies, okay, Susan, don't listen to this. Okay, one of my favorite strategies, I just kind of act like it's not happening. You ever done that? Like, it'll just, it'll go away. It's no, I mean, whatever's going on, they'll resolve it. Now, at that moment, why don't I want to go in there? Why don't I want to go in there? Because if I go in there, I might actually find out what's happening. (laughs) And if I find out what's happening, what does that mean? I've got to do something about it. 
and I'm tired, and I'm lazy. And actually, though, the Bible doesn't call it laziness. The Bible calls it sin, okay? And it's the opposite of love. So, so right now, we're just talking about the scope of love, and I just want to just plant the seed as we go to the second point. Where in your life do you need to expand your scope or perspective of love? Where in your life might there be hard things that need to be said, issues that need to be addressed, and I don't know where that is. Children, work, friend, marriage, I don't know. I don't know. Hard, hard things, and you just don't want to go there because that may mean conflict or that may mean disruption or disturbing the peace or that person not liking me or, oh my goodness, the, 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 the status of the relationship is going to be threatened. Remember, Paul was, if he were here, he would tell us, folks, there is no, you know, a lot of times we like to think there's truth and love, truth and grace. It's like, no, 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 no. Hey, truth is love. Truth is grace. Grace is truth. Love is truth. Fully orbed, multidimensional love holds all of these things together. We have a hard time with it. I have a hard time with it. Paul, though, gets it. You know, now, what's his goal? And second point, what's his goal here with the Corinthians before he comes for his, his visit? What's, what's his goal? You look at verse 1 in, th- in chapter 13. Paul says he's coming to see them, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 19.15, which is a law regarding witnesses. Okay, so, so everything must be established through multiple witnesses. In other words, this was for the protection of the people of God in Old Testament Israel that you could not, based upon your singular word, um, indict someone, okay, um, the accusation did not immediately qualify to be guilt, okay? And we, 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 see, we see circumstances like this all the time in the news, don't we, okay? So, so outside the lines, documentary about lacrosse players, okay, falsely accused. But the accusation was so serious that, that we immediately want to impute guilt. And so, so in the Old Testament, there was this idea, if you want to accuse someone, evidence, evidence. And, and the more evidence, the better, and from the more sources, the better. And here, and so what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, look, I've totally satisfied all those things. I, I visited with you multiple times. I've had emissaries, helpers, Titus, he's come back. He's given re- re- reports. There's a cumulative mound of evidence that is mounting. And so I have a clear conscience in coming to you and confronting you about those Things. Okay, understand this, this is a sidebar. Okay, this is a sidebar. Paul is a reluctant confronter, by the way. He's a reluctant confronter. As, as much as a lot of us are, you know, adverse to conflict, don't want to go there, don't want to ask the hard questions, don't want to speak directly to people, there's a small subset of us that thrive on conflict. Okay, are you someone who thrives on conflict? You love mixing it up. You're not afraid to say what's on your mind. Guys, Paul was a reluctant confronter. He bore with them. He was patient. He had multiple visits, multiple letters, multiple engagements, and it's only at this last hour 
when they have refused time after time after time to heed his word, that Paul is finally saying, okay, we're going to that last step of severe discipline, being put outside the body, unless, unless, between now and then, you repent. I'm going to look at what we think happened at the end of this sermon. So, so understand, Baroques, what fully orbed love isn't. What, understand what this isn't. Okay? For Paul, this is not a naked display of authority to show them who's in charge. Okay? The exertion or the demonstration of severe authority was not Paul's desired path. Look in verse 10. This is really good. He says, for this reason, I write these things that while I'm away from you, this is kind of a themed verse for the whole section. I write these things that while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul did not eagerly desire this confrontation. Folks, be, examine your heart, know your heart. Sometimes we can be too eager for a confrontation, too eager to say the hard thing, too eager to say the thing that may not need to be said at the right, right at that moment. But here's the paradox of Paul saying this. What were the Corinthians challenging? They were challenging Paul's authority. They were saying, Paul, you don't speak on behalf of God. And so look what verse 7 says. Paul says, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. What, what is Paul saying? Parents, let me ask you a question. When is it that your children are most in tune to your authority? When is that? When you're having to use it, right? <laughs> when you're having to implement discipline, when you're having to say the hard things, implement the hard things, when you have to lower the boom right? That's when, they, that's when they know who's boss, right? But any parent will tell you, Man, I'd rather not go there, right? That's a hard place to live in that kind of place all the time. And the only thing separating someone from their obedience is your authority. No, no, no. We want, we'd love to have peace and restoration and redemption. And here's what Paul's saying. Corinthians, I, I don't want to go there. And I realize that not, by not going there, you may not see me as authoritative as you might if I had to implement the discipline. He said, but that's okay. That's okay. I'd rather, I would rather you continue to see me as weak than me to have to come and do this very, very hard thing. Paul says, I will gladly, gladly, Corinthians, forego being the BMOC. What is that? Big man on the Corinthian campus, right? I'll gladly forego that. Just turn. Just repent. Do you see Paul's heart in this? This is his heart. He, he's grieving over them. He's, he's lamenting. He's, he's mourning. He's reluctant. He's not eager to brandish the sword. He's, he's, he's tentative. He's meek. It's his last resort. Guys, a, a real lesson to learn there us. But what is Paul's goal? Okay, what is, if that's not his goal, what is his goal? Look at verse 9. Very simple. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Okay, and this is, this is what he's praying for. This is what many of you are praying for in your conflict and relationships. He says, 
We are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. All of this, Four Oaks, this whole letter is about that. It's not about punishment. It's not about wielding his authority. It's not about showing them who's the boss. It's not about bringing them into line. He just simply wants them to be restored to him and to the Lord. And that, and that verb, to, to restore, it's, it's the same sense that we have in the English when we restore an antique. Okay, when you have a, a, a reclamation project, okay, so, so if Susan goes off to buy a piece of junk, okay, at, the, at a garage sale, okay, and brings it home and wants to reclaim it, okay, we want to, what we're saying there is we want to make it useful. This is something somebody would have stuck out by the road. This is like an old piece of furniture. It's something we're waiting for the dump to take. And it's like, no, 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 we can actually do, take this piece, this antique, this, this thing, and we can restore it. We can fix it. We can make it useful again. Got a call last Saturday from Susan. She was garage selling. There was something she was looking at. And usually my instinct when she asks, should she buy something, is what? Oh, please, no. No, please, no. Do not bring, no, do not bring that into the garage, Please. He's like, well, I'm here with Spencer Mitchell, and he kind of wants it, and I kind of want it. I'm like, Spencer, take this thing, okay? And he did, and it didn't work, and they had to throw it away, and I'm so thankful for that, okay? Paul's like, no, 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 I don't want to throw you away. I want to reclaim you. I want to restore you to usefulness in relationship to God. And, and, and let me tell you why it's important what, for us to have a clearly defined goal in mind when we are engaging people around these hard things. Let me tell you why it's important to have that restoration goal in mind. Um, there was a woman, not in this church, many years ago that was a friend of ours, and her husband was, was spending huge amounts of, husbands don't try this at home, huge amounts of time away from home at night, unaccountable, Unexplained charges on the credit card, disappearing paychecks, strange calls, weird friends showing up at the house in the middle of the night. Okay, right? N not, not the direction we want to go, okay? And the question is, in that moment, how should she love her husband? What does love look like in that context? And so we counseled her in a way that Paul, in a very similar way that Paul is counseling here that it was time for her to kind of step into this place and to speak into some things and to bring some accountability and transparency and to kind of mobilize into action. As much as she didn't want to, it's like, for this person's soul, for the sake of your marriage and your family. She chose not to go in that direction. She did what so many of us often do, which is she chose to manage it, not deal with it. Do you know the difference? Manage it. Work around it, okay? No direct confrontation, no accountability, no rebuke, and, and it's just, it was so e just easier not to go there, okay? Don't rock the boat, keep the peace, keep some semblance of hell for those on the outside looking in. It was spiritually and relationally catastrophic. Why? It goes back to at the very beginning, what is our goal? And Paul says, let me make, make thing, one, one thing crystal clear. 
My goal is that you be restored to the Lord. You be restored to one another. And here is how I want you to do it. This is the last point. How does Paul bring, how does Paul close the circle on this? And we're going to talk here about the test, which I think is the hardest part of this passage. You know, Paul is being attacked, and they are saying, Christ is not speaking through you, Paul. Christ is not speaking through you. And Paul here in this last chapter, his words to prime the pump, he turns it around and basically says this. The issue is not whether Christ is speaking in me, Corinthians. The issue is whether Christ is living in you. Are, are you real? Are you authentic? And Paul says, I want to propose a test for you. A spiritual audit of sorts. Okay? And, and, and I want you to, to, to undergo this audit, to examine your hearts so that you can bring yourself in back into alignment with the will of God. Now, we just got through tax season. I see my friend Mark Payne over there. Tax season, busy season, right? Yes, okay, it's done. You go to the mailbox. Let me ask you this, people. Which letter, which, whose logo do you dread seeing the most on that envelope more than any other? Which, which, which logo? The IRS. Oh, okay. Mark eats the IRS for lunch, by the way. Anyway, so when, when, what's your fear as you open that? I'm going to owe some money. Like that, That's a fear. But like, what's your worst fear? Is this the year that I get what? Audited. Oh my gosh. Okay. They're going to come poking and prodding and putting their fingers in all of my stuff. And they're going to be like literally climbing around in my closet looking for my tax receipts. Okay. You know, it's like, it's that sort of horrifying feeling. No one, let's be honest, likes an audit, right? No one intuitively desires that. Yet, Paul here is calling for a spiritual audit, how are we to think about it? Because audit for us signals this, this is bad. <laughs> this, is, this is bad news. This is heavy-handed. But see, the, the, the goals are different. The IRS's job is to what? Punish you and take your money. Mark, did I get that right? Yeah, basically. Punish you and take your money. Paul's goal is to discipline you, for us to discipline ourselves and to restore our souls. See how we have to reframe love here? Look at verse 5. Paul says, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Paul is not so much wanting to strike like an unhealthy fear. He just says, Corinthians, examine your life. Examine your life. Examine your heart. You're living like pagans. You're living like non-Christians. You're not accepting the authority of the Word of God in your life. Look inside. Examine yourself ethically, morally, theologically. I'm confident you can pass the test, but, 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 but look inside. And, there, and there's three things okay, that we want to say about this test okay, that I think will be very, very helpful for us. Okay? And here, here's the first one. The spiritual audit that Paul calls us to undergo is meant to help you and I discern the dominant voice in our life. See, every one of us is listening to someone or something in our life. 
Something is functioning as our authority. Every person in here has an authority. The, the issue that Paul is wanting us to press into is who is that or what is that? It's very interesting that Paul says, you know how you know if you're submitting Corinthians to God's authority? You're listening to my voice. That's not Paul being an egomaniac. Paul's an apostle. He's speaking on behalf of Christ. What is the equivalent for us? See, we listen to the voice of Paul too in the scriptures. We listen to the voice of Jesus. We listen to the voice of the prophets in the Old Testament. We listen to the voice of the other apostles in the New Testament. A Christian, and this is, I think, what Paul would say, a Christian is not someone who's perfect. A Christian is someone who the fundamental voice they listen to in their life is the voice of God, which is found in his word. Paul's just saying, Corinthians, or Oaksters, is that the right way to say that? Oakians, I don't know, okay, look at your life. Which, what's the dominant voice that you're listening to? And you may say, Pastor Paul, I want to follow Christ. I really do, but I struggle. I struggle with besetting sins of porn and homosexuality and lying and lust and gossip and drunkenness. What does that mean for me? I would simply say, oh, Christian, be thankful that you are struggling because struggle is, is a sign that God's Spirit is active and alive in you. That you are wrestling as you seek repentance and growth before Him. Because part of the Corinthians' problem is that they had stopped struggling. That's when you need to be concerned. See, their lives were, a, were characterized by a settled refusal to submit their will to God, all the while knowing what God's will was. Christian, if you are struggling, I'm thankful for that. God's Spirit is alive and well and working in you. It's when we reach a place in our spiritual lives, when we know clearly what the Word of God says, and we make a decided decision, fist raised to God, it doesn't bother us at all, I know this is what you want, Lord, but I am doing this. Paul says that's when you got to be careful. That's when you have to apply the spiritual test. Repentance, repentance. The sin qua non, what does that word mean? Without which there is none. That which is absolutely necessary. Christian, repentance is the sin qua non of the Christian life. It's, it, repentance doesn't save you, but repentance, change is a fruit of God's work and his Holy Spirit in your life. And Paul's saying, if you ever reach a point, those who profess Christ, when you are no longer struggling, you are settled, you, you have a decided stance, and you're listening to a different voice, test yourself, Paul says. Examine yourself. Number two, and these will be quick. This is, and this might be an obvious point, but it's really good. This is meant to be, folks, a self-examination. <laughs> okay, the, the, you get what I'm saying? You are to test yourself and only yourself. Okay? You're to test yourself and only yourself. You see, you may be listening to this sermon, and you are immediately thinking about someone, aren't you? Right? Okay? You may be doing the spiritual audit in your mind on that person, on your spouse, on your child, on your extended family member, on that person in your fellowship group. And, and you know what? You may be right. You may be wrong. I don't know. Paul over here, he would say, stop it. <laughs> okay, stop it. 
begin by doing the spiritual audit in your own life. Guys, Paul, okay, Paul does not pass ultimate judgment here. In fact, what does he say in verse 5? He says, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ, he's in you. Okay? He assumes that. And then kind of parenthetically, unless you fail the test, but Corinthians, I assume the best about you. We assume the best, but we begin by doing this in our own hearts. Okay, which leads us to this last point related to tests, and we'll be done. We begin with a self-examination, but part of Christian love is not that we do a spiritual, spiritual autopsy or spiritual audit on someone else, but we encourage them to do it for themselves. See, Paul doesn't pass ultimate judgment. But neither does Paul sit passively by while the Corinthians are sowing, kind of going off the chain. He observes, he offers commentary, he proposes a recommendation based on what he's observing. But he says, but ultimately the audit is theirs. And Christian, God, there, there are some of us, we fall off on one side of the horse or the other, Right? Some of us are just like all into doing spiritual audits of other people. Okay, that might be one, one extreme you're, you fall off on. Probably for most of us, that's not where we fall off. We fall off because we're just, we don't want to go there. We don't want to encourage that son or that daughter or that friend or that what, whoever. Say, hey, examine yourselves. Test yourselves. You're judging me. No, I'm not judging you. God's your judge. I'm just saying, here's what I'm observing and there's not really repentance in your life, and there doesn't seem to be a Godward direction, and I don't know what that means. Okay? Maybe you're like David who committed murder and adultery and didn't repent until what? Nathan confronted him. The sin qua non of the Christian life, repentance. The test. Here's the last question. What happens if we get to the end of 2 Corinthians 13, this whole letter could be summed up in test yourself, Corinthians, what happened? Do we know what happened? Well, we have some tantalizing clues. We know after this, and you don't have to turn there, you can just write them down for reference, that in Acts 20, we know that after, because Paul, remember, he was in Macedonia when he wrote this. I'm sorry, he was in Asia Minor when he wrote this. But we know from Acts 20 that he went after this and spent three months in Greece, of which Corinth was the principal city. In fact, we believe from Romans 15 that Paul, in fact, wrote Romans from where? Corinth. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I, I, just, I just now thought of this. The site of one of Paul's greatest ministry struggles people fleshly and carnal and turning away from God, became sort of the seat of Paul's greatest theological treatise, Romans. Isn't that interesting? And Paul wrote in Romans 15 that he was going on to Jerusalem to, to take the collection. Why had, what was one of the reasons Paul had come to Corinth? Was to take what? A collection. So we have these tantalizing clues that Paul indeed was received, that the Corinthians did in fact repent, that his 
appeals were successful. And that Paul, and this is what's amazing about, about this whole thing. Do you, do you find it amazing? I do. That through all of this, Paul's hope in the people of God, the local church, never wavers. It never does. Never does. And if there was anyone who could give up on the church, we would understand if it was Paul. Paul has seen things that most of us can't even begin to fathom. Betrayals, stabbings in the back, unethical behavior, immorality, leadership crises. But Paul, at the end of the day, says the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, I have fellowship with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, okay? Aim for restoration. Paul never gives up on the family of God. And let me just close by saying this. At the end of this book, this is a great opportunity to remind ourselves of the family of God that he has given us here. And that for some of us, it's just time to become part of the family. It doesn't have to be this family, but we believe it is God's will for every believer, New Testament believer, to be tethered and tied to a family that we call the local church. And I mean this so sincerely, for all of its problems, there is such great hope for the people of God. Think about this. Corinth, the center of debauchery, Corinth becomes the seat upon which Paul writes the greatest theological truths in all the Bible. Not because they were great, but because the grace of God. Christ in you, Four Oaks, is the hope of glory. Christ in us is the hope of glory. Come be a part of the people of God. You want to find out more about that? What does that mean? Come to our Engage class. But for now, we are pointing to communion this morning. No more fitting, better way to celebrate God's work of grace in the people of God than coming together to this table. Because Christian, God had a fully orbed love for you and for me. He didn't overlook our sin. He died for our sin. He dealt with our sin. And now he invites us, calls us into relationship with him through faith and repentance in his son, Jesus Christ. Tables open to any and all who are professing his name.